We know we just uh, participated in communion, Jewish Passover fulfilled, the Eucharist, whatever you grew up calling it. And today we're going to be in a passage where Jesus is giving his final words at a Passover meal. But there's also some real puzzle pieces that we're going to need to put together. And I want to try and talk a little bit in the opening today about where we are, what day of the week we are, what time we are. Not because I know for sure this is it, but because it's going to frame being able to experience what time and day we're at as Jesus is going to have these encounters he has for the next couple of weeks together as we go through his Passion Week together. But to do that, we're going to look at puzzle pieces that don't seemingly fit. I mean, Jesus is celebrating Passover meal with his disciples. Oh, that's neat. And yet he dies the next day at the same time the Passover lamb dies. Well, that's neat. Well, how can it be Passover the day before if the Passover lamb hasn't died and you eat the lamb after it's killed? Which is it? It's a puzzle. How could Jesus die on Good Friday and be raised on Sunday if he needs to be in the grave for three days? And he mentions Jonah needs to be three days and three nights. You just can't quite get the math to work. Is the Bible inaccurate? How can Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that Jesus is celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples, and yet John says the feast is yet to come? Is the Bible contradicting itself? To make things more challenging, the Jews worked off a lunar calendar, And we work off a solar calendar and trying to sync the two up to figure out what day and what time and how Jesus fulfilled his crucifixion and resurrection when the two calendars seem contradictory. Even more confusing is that when we think of a day, we think day then night, but for the Jews it goes night then day. As Genesis says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So what we call Wednesday night is their Thursday morning. More than that, in 1570, Pope Gregory added 10 days to our calendar. So it's hard to figure out even what year we're talking about because 10 days have got added since 1570. So how do we put these puzzle pieces together? I want to try and propose to you, it's 20 hours of research, I'm going to summarize in 10 minutes here, is that I believe Jesus died on April 2nd on our calendar of 33 AD. And I think it takes a lot of these seemingly contradictions and solves a lot of problems you may not know even existed. So let's begin by looking at what the Eucharist or what the communion table is. It's fulfilled Passover. Remember, Passover came from Moses when they exited out of Egypt when he said, on the 10th of this month, the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, every man will take for himself a lamb. So on the 10th of the month, you would take a lamb and that sort of began you thinking about Passover, even though Passover didn't officially begin until the 14th day of the month. But from the 10th to the 14th, you had four days, you're already cleaning out the leaven, thinking about Passover. So you might even refer to this whole time as Passover, even though it doesn't officially begin until the 14th of the month. He says, you're to keep this festival or this celebration for, as a memorial for all generations. It's called a feast. And then once Passover begins on the 14th, you are to celebrate for seven whole days, having Passover meals every day for seven days. Remembering what God has done, his deliverance for you, his freedom from shame and guilt to you. On most calendars, if you look at 33 AD, you will find that Passover occurred, or Nisan, the 14th, occurred on a Thursday. You'll also notice that the Sunday before, the 10th on Lamb Selection Day, was the very day that Jesus would have been coming into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day for his triumphal entry. 
So on the day that people were picking out their lamb, Jesus was presenting himself as the perfect lamb. These four days prior to Passover were days people were already celebrating Passover, thinking about Passover. And though it may not be the official Passover meal, kind of like when you have Christmas, right? You have Christmas dinner with your family on one day, might be two days after Christmas. Christmas meal with somebody else a day before Christmas. You've got to fit everybody in, but you refer to all of them as your Christmas celebration. This whole 14-day period, there were things and, and Passover was on your mind. With that in mind, let's get one more thing that's confusing. When you say Sabbath, most people think of the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday, and that's true. But there were high holy days that were also called the Sabbath. So that Thursday was a Sabbath because it was Passover. Oh, and that Friday was a Sabbath because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Saturday was a Sabbath, and Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits because it was a Sabbath. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John talk about a Sabbath, they could be referring to any of the four days. Chad, are you going to solve this for us? We're going to try. So a few hints as to why this might be the week and year that puts all these seemingly contradictions together. First of all, remember, Jesus references Jonah and says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we need to get a night a day, a night, a day, a night, a day, a night, and a day. From the time Jesus is resurrected, we got to work backwards, which puts him being crucified on Thursday, Nisan the 14th of Passover. So, though it's been referenced as Good Friday, the chances he died on Good Friday are probably low, but people think that because it will say, we got to get his body in the ground because the next day was Sabbath, thinking it was Saturday. But remember, Friday was a Saturday. A Sabbath, and Thursday was a Sabbath, which may cause some of the confusion. Okay, so with that in mind, we've got to get three days and three nights. The puzzle continues. So in that in mind, it's Thursday, what we call Wednesday night, 6 p.m. And Wednesday night, their Thursday goes from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and then their day goes from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's how it works. So at 6 to 7 p.m. is the preparation meal. So in John 13, he references that the feast is still to come, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke say he's celebrating Passover. They can both be true. It's just not the Passover meal. You don't have the Passover meal until the next day on Passover. But Jesus is celebrating Passover in those four days prior when you're picking out your lamb and getting rid of the leaven. He's not going to be there the next day to celebrate the Passover meal. So he's walking through a Passover meal. So by tomorrow when he dies, they're like, now we get it. Which is why John can say something that seemingly contradicts the other three, and it makes sense. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world, Jesus said to Judas, hey, what you do, do quickly. But no one knew what reason he said this. But some thought because Judas had the money that Jesus had said, buy those things we're going to need for the feast. Not the feast we're having, but for the feast that's coming. So, if that's the case, I want you to imagine our Wednesday night, their Thursday morning. It's 6 p.m., the day has just begun, and Jesus is celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples. Three hours from now, like an episode of 24, Jesus is Jack Bauer, and you're not going to believe what's going to be packed into his next 24 hours. 6 p.m. is a, pr- a meal. 9 p.m. he's praying in the garden. 12 a.m. Judas and the soldiers are going to show up at 12 a.m. 
They're going to have a mockery kangaroo court sometime between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m., a trial at Caiaphas' house. Peter's going to deny right outside of Caiaphas' house. We're still on what they would call Thursday night. Pilate, 6 a.m. Herod, 6 a.m. Scourging, 6 a.m. We're now moving into what they call the day. It's still Thursday. He gets crucified at 9 a.m. By 12 p.m. of that day, he will have darkness covering the entire land. And he will die at the ninth hour, what we call 3 p.m. He dies at the very moment the priests start killing off the Passover lambs, according to Josephus, the historian. He said at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., is when they would kill the Passover lamb on Passover in preparation for the Passover meal. Which is consistent with Matthew, which says, Now the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness on the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But remember, he has to be buried before Passover begins at 6 p.m. when the next day begins. Therefore, he's buried. And then that night, they experience the Passover meal. He's then buried before that because the next day is the Sabbath, a feast of unleavened bread. And Mark, it tells us now when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath, which Sabbath, the unleavened bread, Joseph Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So the Passover meal, the official one, happened between Thursday night and the beginning of Friday, which is 6 p.m., Which means Jesus' body was now in the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he was raised on Sunday. And by 6 a.m. when the day begins, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene brought spices and that they might come and anoint him. And when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, of whom they'd cast out seven demons. Now why is this important? Well, one, I'm trying to tell you because it's going to frame the next two weeks of our, next two months of our teaching as we finish up Luke. I want you to picture where we are and what time it is and what it feels like to be at that moment. But it is so important to understand if my hypothesis of putting it all together is true, my goodness, Jesus made it obvious that he was the Messiah. He triumphal entries on the lamb preparation day. He dies on Passover. He's buried in the ground on unleavened bread. He's raised uh, to resurrection on the Feast of first fruits, all according to a prophetic calendar God laid out. And it tells you that God is trustworthy, the Bible's trustworthy. Seems that things that look like seeming contradictions are just misunderstandings because we're separated from the original context because of certain words and phrases. But the goal here is that we would understand that we can know Jesus is who he says he was and we can trust God for what he says in our life. So with that in mind, I want you to imagine now at 6 p.m., 6 p.m. and Jesus is addressing a Passover meal with his disciples and he's going to say some words to them and specifically to Peter. Which gets us to our key verse for today. Our key verse is pretty simple, really. Verse 35. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Watch, therefore, you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster. Watch out for the rooster. Now he's using it as a metaphor of mourning. He's not yet talking about the specific rooster. That's going to predict Jesus, uh, Peter's denial. Watch out for Jesus coming. Watch out that you're temptable. Watch out that you don't lose faith. Watch out that you don't fall asleep. Watch out that you don't get get backsliding in your faith. Watch out that you're ready for my return. In fact, in case he misses it, he says it again. Lest coming suddenly, the master find you sleeping, which is exactly what's going to happen in three hours, by the way, in the garden. 
What I say to you is this. I say to you all, watch. Twice he says it. Watch. And the rooster here represents Jesus' return. Your own complacency, your own self-sufficiency, your own inability to do it in your own efforts, as you'll see in a moment. Embedded in this key verse are three rooster lessons that we need to learn. And the first rooster lesson is this. We need to watch out because Satan is trying to wring your neck. And that's exactly what he says to Peter. He says... Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Whenever you see in the Bible somebody's name mentioned twice, Simon, Simon, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. It's a deep expression of emotion and personal. God, listen, please, please, please listen. Simon, Simon, it's going to be a tough next 12 hours. And Satan has asked to wring your neck. What you're going to go through, you better watch, you better pray, you better be ready. Because Satan is going to try and wring your neck. In fact, this phrase, to sift you like wheat, would have been very well known in that culture, an agricultural community. Where you take your wheat, it's got all the chaff in with it, and you've got to sift it. And when you sift it, the, weed, the, the chaff would stay, or blow away sometimes, and the seeds that were smaller would fall through. Here's kind of a modern day farmer doing a small version of this. He takes the, the, the wheat with the chaff and dumps it into a sifter. He then begins to shake it back and forth. And as he does, the seeds fall out and the weeds or chaff stay in. Now, have you ever felt like you're going through a time of sifting? Or Satan or somebody or life <clears throat> is trying to wring your neck? Where it's just like, you've got to be kidding. Is this still going on? Is this still going on? When is it going to stop sifting? And you just feel like it's shake after shake after shake, ring after ring after ring. Watch out. We're in a battle, a spiritual battle. And you're not going to outlast Satan. You're not going to outwillpower Satan. You're going to have to say, God, you've got to help me in this. You've got to give me the faith I need and the fortitude. You've got to build the neck muscles I need to sustain me during this time. I'm interviewing Scott at this next service, and he's going to talk about some times of doubt in his life. One of the doubts he's going to talk about is just a few months prior to his daughter's wedding. Great guy, great relationship, and yet two months before the wedding at one of the bridal showers, all of a sudden he says, I don't think I love you, and breaks up with her. And just how it broke his daughter's heart. And he was away on a, on a men's retreat with his, his boys, and just how heartbreaking it was not to be there and to fix it. And, and then that he felt like God was telling him that this sifting was important and this relationship needed to die and if he had been there he'd try and fix something that shouldn't be fixed just time of sifting he said our whole family's faith was shaken during this time how about your neck how's your faith neck these days see that's the thing about a chicken if you ever talk to a grandmother who used to raise her own chickens like my mom's grandmother that's how you made chicken you'd wring its neck and the neck muscles aren't particularly strong. It took about that to kill a chicken's neck. And many of our faith is just so easily broken when we're sifted. But God wants us, what kind of neck do you have? Do you have a, a chicken neck? I want a chicken neck. Or do you have an elephant neck? Or do you have a rhinoceros neck? Or do you have a horse-muscled neck? See, God wants to develop the kind of neck that when Satan tries to sift us and wring us, it actually is sustainable. 
remember my, gra- my wife's grandmother, they would have chickens running all over the place. And you may have heard stories like this, but it's true. You know, you would actually grab the chicken. It was time for dinner. It's like, all right, first we wring the neck. And if you set the chicken down, the nerve endings are still working. It's still the nerve endings. It runs around the yard a couple times, which is where we get the phrase, running around with your chicken with its head cut off. And when Satan begins to sift you and break your faith, you start running around in total fear and panic. You ever been there? I've been sifted. Fear and panic. Fear and panic. Watch out when fear and panic take over rather than confidence in God. And that's why there's a promise embedded here. Remember in the series we're looking at PACER, P-A-C-E-R, ways to find promises and actions and examples and rebellion in a passage. There is an incredible promise here when you're going through sifting. It's a, it's a P, a promise to claim. What is that promise? Satan has asked for you. Satan can't do whatever he wants. He has to get permission from God. So the promise to claim is that whatever sifting you're going through, God is still on the throne. He is still in control. Whatever sifting is happening, he promises. He's allowed Satan to ring you and to sift you so that he can get the chaff out of your life and allow the good stuff, the fruit of his spirit, to fall through. He's going to bring seeds of righteousness out of you. And that's a promise. Satan can't do anything to you that your dad isn't still really in charge of. And how would you frame your current circumstance if you said, I know my heavenly father is still on the throne, even though it doesn't feel like it. Right? So watch out. Satan's trying to wring your neck. Lesson number two of our chicken lessons is watch out. Jesus is praying that you won't be chicken here. He doesn't want you to be chicken as you face these circumstances. He says, Peter, 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 I, Jesus, have prayed for you. Now, how cool is that? That your Messiah and your God, and I'm going to show you how this applies not just to Peter, to all of us. What if you faced your current circumstances and you knew for sure that Jesus himself was praying for you? By name, by situation. Wouldn't that change feeling alone in the middle of it? He says, Peter, I have prayed, I have prayed that your faith should not fail. Doesn't he deny him three times? Apparently, Jesus doesn't have a very good prayer life because it's not working out real well, Jesus. You prayed for Peter not to fail. He failed once, twice, three times a lady. Three times he failed. Jesus, you got to work on your prayer life. Or maybe we need to keep reading. What does it mean to fail in God's eyes compared to ours? See, we apply a perfectionistic mindset here, but look what he says. I pray that your faith would not fail. Part one, that it would not fail. Let's define success or failure. Part two, and when you have returned, huh, Jesus presumes you're going to make mistakes, you're going to fail, you may even deny me, but I'm praying that when you fail, you return to me. Part three, And you use your failure and your returning and what God did and what God taught you in that to strengthen the brethren. Fail, return, strengthen. That's how God defines success. Being chicken is not failing. Being chicken is not making mistakes. It's not not losing your temper. It's not having a difficult time in your marriage. It's not finding out how self-centered you are. It's not being a perfect Christian. Good luck with that. Being faithful and strong and dependent is saying, I'm going to fail. That's why Jesus died. I'm a bigger failure than you ever thought, but cheer up. You're worse than you think. And God still loves you. You're worse than you think, and God still loves you. You fail, 
And then you return and say, wow, his grace is so sufficient. Wow, he loved me even though he knew I was going to do this. And then you use that experience to tell others. Yeah, we're so guarded about our weaknesses. We're so guarded about our mistakes. We, we think pretending to be not failing is the way to, to influence people. That's not how you strengthen people, by pretending you're perfect. Nobody can relate to that. I saw a podcast, I think it was last year, when Leonard Nimoy died, which touches the kind of podcast I listen to, a geeky Star Trek podcast. His uh, son was talking about his dad. He loved his dad. He respected his dad. His dad was, you know, just loved for the character Spock um, and the influence he had on TV and on movies. He said, I didn't really know my dad. I loved him. I respected him. We pretty much had pretty light conversations. But later in his life, my father went through AA. And it's when he went through AA that I had been going through AA for many years. And it was amazing because it was that phase of life that I got to know my dad. As we talked about our weaknesses and our struggles and our difficulties together. And we had conversations we never had before. And it was in my father's weakness that we strengthened our relationship. I was doing a dad's group several years ago and talking about how important it is for us to confess our mistakes and to tell our kids where we struggle because we want them to show how to fail. Then how do you return? And we strengthen our families by, by sharing honest stories. One of the dads said, I just, it really is so hard for me to, to do that because I don't want my kids to know I'm a failure. And I said, I know that feels really true, but let me tell you something. Your kids are not fooled. Your kids are not going to be surprised when you admit your failure. They're going to be like, finally he gets it. Finally he gets it. You're actually going to gain more credibility. Like, oh, he sees that he loses his temper. He sees that he's kind of dismissive. You actually gain credibility when you fail, return, and strengthen. So Jesus is praying that you won't be chicken, that you and I will not be chicken. And again, there's a promise here. Because why does Jesus pray for him? And is it a successful prayer? Well, I think that's worth considering. Let's look at how Jesus is praying for you as well. In this passage, I prayed for you, Peter. But in the book of Hebrews and Romans, Jesus is praying for you and I. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God praying for you that your faith would not fail in your circumstances right now. Romans reiterates it. It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? He's making intercession for us. Jesus, that's a promise to claim. Jesus is praying for you in your circumstances. Many of you know Marcus, our CEO, he grew up on a farm. And one of his morning responsibilities was to put water out for the chicken, let the chicken drink all the water, and then, you know, take the bowl away. One day he was on his way to school and, and was moving a little bit fast. So he put the water out. He's like, I don't have time to watch him drink this. I'll just you know, leave it there about you know, one inch of water. Runs off to school. Comes home that evening. Dad comes running out. What did you do? What? You drowned the chicken. Why did I drown the chicken? Did you watch him drink all the water before you took it away? No. Well, guess what? Chicken went down, started drinking, fell in, bloop, went belly up. Chicken drowned himself in one inch of water. Why? Because chickens are stupid. (laughs) Brain about this big. You see, Peter and Judas will both fall headlong into denial and into betrayal. One fails and one doesn't. Because one falls in and just wallows and drowns that there's no way God could forgive me after I denied him and took 30 pieces of silver for him. He went belly up. The other said, maybe there's a God who could restore me. Maybe there's a God who could use my failure And though he fell into the water, he came out of the water. 
He failed and returned. So it's a promise to claim that Jesus is praying for you in your circumstance. And our third application here is that watch out because the cock crows and the bell tolls for those who think they're ready. Peter, you better watch out. Things are going to get bad. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll, I'll, Satan, I'll take care of it. In fact, look at his response. But he said to him after this warning, watch, 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 careful, careful, careful. Peter turns to the Lord and says, Lord, I am ready to rumble. I am ready to go. I'm ready to go with you. I'll go to prison. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm not going to deny you. I am ready. Sunday, 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 shake hands with the devil. I'm going to beat him. You want to know how you're not going to beat Satan? (laughs) When you think you're ready. You know how you're going to fall into temptation? When you don't think you're susceptible to temptation. You know how you're going to lose your faith? When you think there's no way you could lose your faith. When in your heart is the voice of self-sufficiency, and here's what self-sufficiency sounds like. I got this. I am ready. Got it covered. When you think you're ready, oh, the cock crows and the bell tolls for those who think they're ready. Which is why Jesus so strongly comes against this. Verse 34. Then he said, I tell you, Peter. Oh, no, 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 no. We've been talking about roosters that are coming in the morning. Let me talk about a specific rooster. The rooster shall not crow today, this day, not someday, this day, before you will deny me three times that you even know me. You think you're ready? <laughs> no, no, Jesus, I'll go to prison for you. I am ready. I will take it all on. Except maybe a little girl who asks me if I know you, then I'll start cursing your name. Oh. I'm telling you. Watch out for that self-sufficient willpower. You're going to take on the spiritual forces because of your willpower. The bell tolls and the cock crows for those who think they're ready. Now, why does he deny Jesus three times? And why does Jesus restore him in John 21 three times? It's a great question. I don't know that we can answer it authoritatively. But one thing that hints at this actually comes from the book of Job. The book of Job, it says, Behold, God works all things twice Actually, in fact, three times. This was a Hebrew way of emphasizing the second thing. Twice, it's not like he stumbled. Twice, ah, now that I think about it, it's three. You see this in Proverbs a lot. This technique is used to emphasize the third, the second number. Second, no, three. Here's what God does. God works all things, in fact, three times with a man. In order to, here's the purpose, three times to bring his soul from the pit. God wants to bring your soul from the pit. And he may let you fall on your face three times to see how deep the pit is. But he may come and say, feed my sheep, do you love me? Feed my sheep, do you love me? Feed my sheep, do you love me? To restore your soul from the pit. So that you may be enlightened, I love this, with the light of life. God will let you go through trials. God will restore you three times because he wants you to know what life is about. Not about pretending you're perfect. Not about not failing. But about failing, returning, and restoring. Do you have a sense that you're ready, that you're self-sufficient, that you've got it all covered? Corey Tinboon spent some time in her book, Hiding Place, talking about what it was like to she and her sister to be in a, a Nazi camp 
just the devastation and the death and the smell and the fleas and the horrificness. But she also described as a little girl, as the Nazis were beginning to build power, she saw many family members who were taken away to these camps and she was scared. And she said to her dad, she said, I don't know if I'm going to have the courage or the faith not to deny my God and deny my faith if I get captured or if they do something to you. And her dad said, honey, when we go on a train ride across Europe, when do I give you the ticket? Um, You give me the ticket right before we get on. He said, that's right. I don't give it to you before. I give it to you right before you need it. You may not feel like you have the courage or the grace you need now, but God will give it to you right before you need it. So don't worry what you're going to say when they persecute you. Do not worry about what you're going to do. Just to be dependent upon God. God, I, don't, I won't be able to do it. But I'm going to need you. I'm never going to be ready for that. I need you to give me the strength and the courage for whatever comes my way. And then you could actually embrace the ways in which you're broken. You can even laugh at your own times in the past you were self-sufficient. In fact, there's a German theologian who says that in reading the early church fathers, who were the disciples of the disciples, that one of the practices of the disciples of the disciples, that every time Peter came into a room, hey, Peter the Apostle's here. As soon as he walked in the room, everybody would be like, cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-doo. People would crow every time he came in the room. It's kind of a reminder of, hey. And apparently he took that with a good uh, sense of humor to say, yep, yep, be careful being self-sufficient. I tried that several years ago. Yep, I'm the cock-a-doodle-doo guy. I'm the crow guy. It was a reminder of the community of what it meant to be dependent upon God. So what's the key takeaway? Of all these different lessons that we have, of all the different promises we just looked at, what is the main idea, the main thing that we need to take away from this message? And I think it's we need to know how to define success God's way. What if we define success as fail, return, and strengthen? How would that affect our parenting? Not that our kids need to be perfect. They need to fail. Learn how to return, to repent, to be humble. And then to strengthen other people by here's what I learned. What does it look like as a parent for you to say, I'm going to parent, not from pretending I'm better than I am, but to fail? Oh my goodness, I blew it again. To return? Hey guys, I need to ask your apology. Let me tell you where I was off base. And strengthen people. What if it meant as a church, not pretending that we're all that, but instead saying, hey, you're sitting next to fellow gossips and adulterers and liars and, and you know, pick the list, narrow-minded people. But man, we found a God who loves us and works in the midst of it. Let me tell you about my failures. Let me tell you about God's grace and helping me return from some of the mistakes I made. And let me strengthen you as a follower of Jesus. Let me strengthen you as someone who's not sure about faith because all the Christians seem like hypocrites who pretend they're better than they were. What if success in your life was fail, return, and strengthen? Might that change how you see the world? How you interact? How you even frame mistakes? How you look at your marriage? How you look at your workplace? I came across a family secret about a month ago. My grandfather was a man I had great respect for. He was a Marine. He did incredible things. This family secret came out, which I won't go into the detail of, but my grandfather had done something when uh, he was in his 30s that, I I was just saying it wasn't a fair, but um, it was something else that was pretty big, and I just was shell-shocked. Now, in one sense, as a pastor, I'm never surprised when sinners sin. 
Right? I'm always amazed that, you know, even we, like as Christian parents, we have Christian kids who sin. And we're like, not my son would never lie. You ever, you ever said that? Or heard somebody say that? No, my son would never lie. We teach kids not to lie. Well, yeah, guess what? My kids lie. I lie. You know, we're sinners in our household. So I can't speak to your household. I'm always amazed that we are surprised when sinners sin. But man, my grandpa, I guess I had him on too high of a pedestal. When I heard this story, I just was devastated. And then I went, I don't know why. Grandpa failed. Grandpa returned. Grandpa used his life to strengthen other people. I had lunch this week with a friend. I was asking, he'd been through a similar situation trying to help his wife during uh, some time with some medical issues. I was kind of getting some, some advice from him. Like, hey, what did you do? Because, you know, this thing with best surgery, it's been seven weeks and the pain's just constant. And, you know, what are some lessons you learned you could pass on to me? And I love how he started the conversation. He goes, well, first of all, I'm not going to be very helpful. He said, Chad, I'm like the king of self-centeredness. And if anything I've learned is how incredibly self-centered I am. And I'm getting a little better, but my goodness, I don't have much compassion. I don't have much of this. I don't have much of that. And I became very aware of just how broken I was. And I started laughing. I thought, wow, I actually kind of like this introduction. <laughs> that introduction is so much more real because I feel like I'm not doing a great job. I'm making mistakes. I'm not being as patient as I need to be. And, and I, I felt strengthened by his honesty where if you come in, here's the three things you do when going through this situation. Number one, be like me. Number two, you know. It was in his honesty that I don't know that I came away with a lot of how-tos. I had a few, but I'm not alone. That someone else has been through and felt the same things, experienced the same things, and, and that God works, and that, and that this is a season, and however long the season is, that God uses these seasons to help us become the people that we need to become. Success. Fail? Yeah. Return. But then strengthen. Let other people strengthen you through their failures and their confessions. And then you strengthen other people for yours as well. And watch what God would do. In fact, that's why we began our church. We wanted this not to be a place where perfect people pretend to be perfect. Because we couldn't recruit any perfect people to be on the, on the team. Where instead, real people share real stories about the real God who has real grace for whatever we do. May we be people who succeed God's way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful message. God, I don't know for sure if you died on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. But God, I am so thankful whatever you did, you fulfilled prophetic predictions. And God, that you fulfilled them in a way that we would know that we have a God who steps into the cracks and the crevices and the brokenness of our lives. And that through that, Father, we would experience and walk in grace, not in law or legalism. We'd walk in grace, not in perfectionism, because of who you are. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you what you're doing through your word. Thank you for what you're doing in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before you go, i got two quick announcements. Uh, number one is uh, this is an exciting week for us. We've been talking about this for a year. This week, construction begins. And so we're going to start construction on the uh, video rooms uh, starting, I think, it's next Friday. And we're also working on the app. So for those of you who have been part of this and praying about this and excited about this, construction begins, uh, what I hear, next Friday. So that deadline got moved a little bit, but I think next Friday is when official construction begins. So thanks again. For those of you wondering, um, that's going to allow us to do live stream and, uh, and video archive here as we look into the fall and into the end of the year. And then, obviously, the new room that's going to be developed will happen after that. And so if you have not given to be part of our, our future growth fund, this is a perfect time to do it. Some of the finishing levels that have been offered to us really are just 
better than a black box theater, something that looks aesthetically pretty beautiful. So if you want to give to be part of that, we're also developing an app that's going to let you search messages by title to watch them. That's adding a little bit additional tool, and that's costing a little bit more. So if you feel like, hey, I don't know if you need my gifts, we need your gifts, it's a great chance in the next week or month to make a, a one-time gift or even a, a yearly pledge so that we can have these other tools in place as we look to the end of the year. Secondly, we have lots of incredible speakers coming for the next two months. We're having a family night, several weeks, where you can learn how to have a better marriage, how to be a better parent, how to interact in different ways. So these family nights are going to happen on Sunday nights from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. And in that, we're going to bring on August 25th, September 8th, and October 20th. We have Josh McDowell here. He's going to share a message at the Exploring Service, and then he's going to talk on how to um, be better with our kids and improving, our, and it's all in your program, how to be better as a parent. Secondly, we have a, a couple who wrote a book called How We Love, which is all about marriage. I did a series in Exploring Service called Get a Clue. It's all about you know, whether you're a vacillator, whether you're a avoider, whether you're a pleaser, whether you're a controller. They are going to be here for a weekend. They're going to speak at our exploring service and equipping service. Then they're doing a workshop on marriage. That's coming up as well. Lastly, Kathy Cook, who wrote a book called The Eight Smarts about how to identify the unique smarts of our kids. She's coming back on how to develop the heart of a child. So sign up for those things. Those are great ways in which we can help equip you and give you the tools you need to have the best kind of life you have. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.